flaps extended. So we're in Manchester at the uh, Runway Visitor Centre. Uh, and if you've never been, it's, uh, it's great for plane spotters and lovers of any kind of aviation. But if you, if you love the Concorde, well, you're in for a treat. You have to come to this place. Uh, I'm stood inside now. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, but uh, stood inside in a hangar looking at an amazing aircraft uh, with one of the guys who looks after it and takes people around. Uh, one of the guides, uh, Ross Williamson. Morning. Good morning, Elliot. Uh, this uh, this Concorde, as I said, is indoors. Uh, there's, there's a, a hangar's been specially constructed for the for the old girl. It has. When it arrived back in 2003, they did the decommissioning work, and it sat on the same tarmac it's on today for five years. And the plan was always to hangar it. And back in 2009, the hangar was completed, and it's fabulous. This is great. It is. It's especially, especially for you in the winter. Absolutely, it's dry, keeps <laughs> the wind off, keeps the ice away, and it's uh, it's where it should be. It's looking fantastic as well. It's, uh, it's, it's probably the cleanest one I've ever seen. It's taken a bit of work. Uh, being outside for five years, of course, you get the sun and the wind and the rain. Um, getting all the, the bird lime off is a challenge. But so now it's indoors, just going through a programme of cleaning, polishing and just general maintaining it. And how popular is the Concorde? Would you say that this is the aircraft everyone comes to see here? Absolutely. If you ask anybody about any particular type of aeroplane, what do they know from over the Concorde? It's got to be the most famous aeroplane in the world. And, and I've, I've said this before because I've seen the one at Brooklands smaller than I was expecting. Yeah, it is quite a challenge. It's Supersonic flight does lead to small aeroplanes by normal standards. And it's, it's a perspective thing. A lot of people come and say, oh, it's massive. Well, in a hangar, it is massive. If you put it next to a 747, it's not so big. So it is a perspective thing. A lot of people go on board, sit in the seats, and they say it's really small, it's compact. But again, it's, it's picture in your mind you got an idea what, what you think it's going to look like and um, well, it, it's measured against that I think. But it's a great setup here because you can, you can wander right underneath it can't you? You can get right up to the uh, you know, the wheels and see into the engine cowlings and it, it's, it's a really you know a re- really well presented aircraft. It is, it's good. The, the hangar itself is just a little bit, a couple of metres either way bigger than Concorde itself but it doesn't look crammed in. The space underneath is great, it's a completely open space and we do all sorts in here, there's corporate events, weddings, uh, we've had product launches, you, know, you can get all sorts in the hangar, it's absolutely fantastic. We're about to go up the stairs now, I noticed you've obviously you're expecting me because you've, uh, you've put the red, the red bunting out, is this for me, is it Ross? We have, we always like to give um, visitors <laughs> a, a special welcome, but yeah, we're actually set for a wedding, we, so we do weddings on the aeroplane and of course you can just have the ceremony on board or you can have the ceremony then come underneath and have your, your reception, so it's a, it's a very flexible venue. Now you do various types of tours, don't you? You do just a general public tour, and obviously we are, you know, we're aviators at Flaps Podcast, so can we have the technical tour, please? Oh, you can. It's our favourite tour. It's, when we started, we just had the one tour that lasted around about 25, 30 minutes, and it was a quick look round, and we quickly realised that there were people interested in aviation that wanted more. So we put the technical tour on, and it's just been a storming success ever since. But we do go into more depth as well with uh, a three aircraft tour. So you can do Concorde, Harmonic, no section of the DC-10. We do the RJX, sometimes we do the Trident as well. But uh, always Concorde. And we also do a Champagne VIP tour. We'll have a bit of that, fantastic. Yeah, yeah two, we'll hours worth of, uh, two hours worth of Concorde and Champagne. It's we'll do all the aircraft <laughs> and some Champagne. We're in air, air, aircraft geek heaven, I think, here at, uh, at Manchester Airport. Right, let's go aboard. Okay. So we're just going into uh, Concorde. Now, what's the uh, what's the registration of this one? This is uh, this is wasn't this a flagship one? It was. This is Golf Bravo Oscar Alpha Charlie. 
At construction numbers 204, this was the first production aircraft off the Bristol line. It wasn't the first Concorde to be delivered to British Airways. That was um, Alpha Alpha. What this one did was spend its first year basically flying between London, the Middle Far East, and London and the States, part of the endurance and testing programme. So it was actually delivered in February 1976. And uh, we've just walked in, and it is very small. It's not, it's, well, it isn't very small, is it? But it's, it's, it's not big by... Uh, sort of people get on holiday jets, you expect a, you know, a bigger cabin than this. It's only two seats a side, isn't it? How many seats are there in total? There are 100. What you've got is two cabins. So the back cabin is the same as the front. It's a one-class aeroplane. But there are 60 seats in the back, 40 seats in the front. And every seat is exactly the same. So it's a, it's a good 37-inch seat pitch, which is nice. It's a compromise, which I think sums up pretty much everything about Concorde itself. But uh, you look through, it's nice comfy leather seats. You've got a little bit of room. Um, if you compare this with modern aircraft, if you're going from London to the States today, if you fly business class or first class, you're going to get a big seat that will go into a flat bed. You might get your own, well, your own personal space. But of course you need it, because the flight time of a Concorde yeah. just half the time of a, a standard. <laughs> exactly. You've certainly got a bit of leg room, haven't you? There's a fair bit of leg room. Yeah, it's nice. Um, we just try the seats. They are lovely seats. It's, it's still got that kind of new car smell. Have you had the seats redone? <laughs> what we did with these, um, these were installed in 2001, yeah. after the Paris crash. Uh, the big challenge then, of course, they did modifications to the aeroplane to make it safe. Um, what they basically did was install tank liners inside all the, the exposed fuel tanks, so around the front and side of the engines. That added weight. So to offset the weight, they installed these seats. Carbon fibre entertaining frame, lovely Connolly leather finish, designed by Sir Terence Conran. And it cost British Airways £7,000 a piece. A seat? Per seat. Uh, it's not, Blimey. Not per pair, that's per seat. <laughs> so you're looking at £700,000 per aircraft for seats. Just for the seats? Yeah. You can see why the tickets were a bit pricey, can't you? You can. You can. It's, uh, <laughs> it, the big thing with Concorde, of course, was that it was fabulous if you're a business person. You've got London and New York, two major business centres. Mm. So if you're going to the States, do it in style, save yourself some time. Absolutely. Right, let's have a wander down. Okay. Lead the way. It's very posh. Very, very posh. We're just walking past the toilets now, and they're, they're, they're no different, really, to a, a normal aircraft, are they? No, they're, they're small. Um, if you look around the aeroplane in general, after the Paris crash, there were plans to do a, a refurb, because you've got these lovely leather seats, a nice blue, matches the carpet, but the rest of the cabin, is the colours don't quite go together. So the plan was to redo the cabin, change the washrooms, and redo the lounges. So looking at around about £14 million extra investment just to give it a new breath of life and bring it back into the well into use in the 21st century. I was expecting at least gold taps. Well, yeah, Or soft may- toilet paper. What's the toilet paper like? Oh, it's just normal stuff, <laughs> Ross. Well, it's some things you've got to have. Um, a big challenge, of course, is weight. You can have lovely, fabulous of course. marble and uh, well, top-notch washrooms, but you carry less passengers. Yeah. So it's, it's quite a challenge. The new washrooms, the design was nice. It's very minimalist. A single tap in that new washroom was going to cost them a thousand pounds. And you look at the size of the tap, so that's just ridiculous. And obviously, of course, this is a sort of technical tour we're doing, but equally, we like a bit of showbiz. Who's been on this aircraft? Everybody. Again, we've had a few of the cabin crew come along and we'll tell you all sorts of stories about the Queen, where the Queen sat. And Has the Queen been on this one? The Queen has flown on a couple of Concords. Wow. So it's, uh, it's one of the... Which seat? 1A. Of course, Mom, of course. 
the nice thing they did, um, they wouldn't typically leave it as a standard layout. So the 40 seats in there, most of those would come out. They'd leave at least the front row in, because they're still going to fasten the seat belts, of course. The rest would become a stateroom. So it was, it was, the crew will tell you it was a nice thing to do. Quite demanding, but um, it's one of those things you can say, you know, I've been on the, the Concorde with the Queen. It's fabulous. Lots of the famous people. You've got, well, every politician from the, the mid-1970s onwards. British politician has been on board. Every US president as well. And uh, celebrities, if you've got a celebrity, you know, they've been on board Concorde. So it's a, every seat is a famous seat. So you see the rear cabin here. Um, on our aeroplane, we protect that with a, a sheet of glass because that's where we do the weddings. So it's as it was on its last flight back in 2003. And we take the front row of seats out. The idea of that is you've got some space for your registrars and your bride and groom. So if, if you really love the Concorde, you can actually get... And the service takes place here, actually, on, on the aircraft. If, if, if you're a fan and you want to get married, you can get married in this plane. Absolutely. Yeah, what people do, they you can have up to 50... And technically, you can have up to 54 guests. There are 56 seats, but you need one for the bride and one for the groom. So people come in, the guests take the seats, the bride and groom board to music, whatever they want to, to board to. The registrar will do the ceremony. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes. You're then a husband and wife. Then you can go off underneath the aeroplane, you can have your reception down there. So it's um, it's very popular. You never had any grooms want to use the emergency exits, have you? Um, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> do you tell them where they're situated? Uh, here, well, here and here. We, we do a few visits first, so we, we give them a, a bit of a laugh and um, introduce a bit of humour in the early stages of the, uh, the planning. But it's nice, it's, it's popular. It's, it's one of those things, if you are an, an aviation fan, then it's what you want to do. Typically, airline people with them are the ones that will do it. Where to next? Uh, flight deck, I think. Oh, flight deck. Going to the flight deck now. The business end. Okay, I think it's fair to say I am in aircraft geek heaven now. And I'm in the captain's chair. Oh, Ross, I love you. Thank you very much. Another great thing about our Concorde is you can do this. We're sat on the flight deck of Alpha Charlie, and you can't do this in any other Concorde anywhere in the world. It's a unique opportunity it's um incredibly complicated you know and and manual dials isn't it there's no computers on board well i mean there are computers but not computers as you'd understand them now and there's no glass cockpit or you know screens no that's right we had um, an emirates triple seven pilot just a couple of days ago he came in on a standard tour did the tour got him on the flight deck and i couldn't get him off <laughs> so he's basically sat here looking at all the dials photographing each individual instrument if you're well, I'd say a recent recruit to flying, you will be used to the, well, the glass cockpit, you know, the multifunction displays. To see all these analogue dials, and there are hundreds of them, is a, oh, a bit of a treat. Well, I mean, I, I, I can fly a, just a, you know, a, a Cessna, and actually it's got the six-pack of normal instruments. You, you look at that, and, you know, the thing I learned to fly was probably about 40 years old, and it's... You, you, it's the same kind of... OK, there's a lot more of them, but it's a similar lot of instruments. Well, exactly. You always need to know the, the basic information, don't you? Your yeah. speed, your height, direction. Um, but it's it's crammed in because it's quite a confined space, so it does look very busy. But uh, it's the same skill. You scan the instruments, you're looking for the same things. So I could fly this, then? Uh, in theory. <laughs> <laughs> Should we have a go? Uh, so, what, I mean, what, is there anything here that, that is non-standard? I mean, obviously there's the dials for, you know, the, the airspeed. I mean, my, my Cessna, whenever I went to Mac 2, I'll be honest. <laughs> oh, it's uh, probably a bit faster than the old Cessna. <laughs> um, some of the instruments are a little bit 
different. You've got strip instruments instead of the, the standard dials, just to save a bit of space. Uh, you'd have TCAS of course. Uh, what you won't see on most other aeroplanes is, well this particular instrument here, it's, a, it's an instrument to show you where the centre of gravity of the aeroplane is. And the big challenge with Concorde is you accelerate, you get two points, the centre of balance and centre of lift, actually begin to move apart. That happens with most aircraft but by a small amount. Or with Concorde if you did nothing you'd have a six foot difference. So the nose would actually pitch quite steeply down. What you've got to do with the centre of gravity is keep that centre of gravity moving back in line with the centre of lift. And to do that you're transferring fuel from the front and, and wingtip tanks to the back tank. And the centre of gravity indicator, you can see the needle, well obviously it's doing nothing at the moment, is just above 52. Well that's 52% of the length of the wing. Typically starts around about 53.4, ends up at 59% of the length of the wing. So you're moving that central gravity by about six feet. And to do that you're shifting roughly 10 tonnes of fuel from the front of the aeroplane to the back. Now we've actually got a massive flight engineer's panel on Concorde. It's got to be the most complex flight engineer's panel that you'll ever see. And the whole centre section, literally, it's a good, I'd say, best part of 30% of the panel. I mean, it's literally floor to ceiling, isn't it? It is. The, the panel is uh, it's massive. But the 30% the of that panel is around about, um, yeah, about 30% for dedicated for managing that fuel. And it can transfer fuel between any of those tanks. And there's all sorts on this panel. You've got some, obviously, engine and engine-related controls. You can manually control the intakes and the exhaust systems if you need to. Got hydraulic systems, electrical systems, aircon systems. It's fairly standard, but just that bit more complicated. There are four seats actually in here. There's the, the captain, the first officer, uh, the flight engineer, and there's a spare one as well. Who's sat there? Well, there is. That's the the supernumerary, the jump seat. And there used to actually be five. An extra seat was just in the tunnel as we came down. It's a fold-up seat, and the two seats on training flights would be occupied by training captains. So you could have five people in the flight deck which is a bit of a squeeze. But as, as you look out over the uh, uh, the cockpit, you can see uh, through the, the very famous nose. And uh, where, are the, where are the switches to work that then? Do you know where they are? Yep, you've got In amongst all these? Literally on the, the front console, about well, just to the right of the, the centre, there's a little lever, a visor nose lever. It's a three position lever. And you can actually move it to the first position that would send the visor, so the outside window with the bars, sliding away down inside the nose. Second position would drop the nose by five degrees, and that's the position used when you're taxing out for takeoff. Once you're in the air, around about 300 miles an hour, you bring the lever back up to the top. That then streamlines the aircraft for its its flight right the way through the supersonic phase. At the far end, once you've decelerated again, around about 300 miles an hour, same process. You drop the lever down two notches, simply because as you slow the aircraft down, the angle of attack increases. On your final approach, typically four five miles away down to 190 miles an hour you then select the bottom position that drops the nose by 12 and a half degrees and that gives you the line of sight to see the runway so it's all about forward vision and streamlining one of the many many challenges of concorde was the transonic phase so imagine you go from 600 to 1100 miles an hour use the afterburners of course mm. it's it's strange to see a commercial aircraft with afterburners but you've got four simple white switches at the bottom of the, the throttle quadrant those will engage the afterburners to take you to your takeoff speed, 250 miles an hour on the ground, and to go from 600 to 1100 miles an hour in the air. And that's just incredible. I mean, you bring them in in pairs, as each pair kicks in, little nudge in the small of your backs, all you feel is the power bites, and then within a minute you're through the speed of sound, and there's nothing. 
for the passengers. Yeah, because th- 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 I've, I've heard that, that people who flew on it, they're expecting something, but you don't notice anything at all. You're going at twice the speed of sound and just, you know, have, having your uh, your champagne. Absolutely. If they didn't tell you when they put the afterburners in, you might think it's a little bit of turbulence. And then within a minute, there's nothing. There is no sensation at all as you break the sound barrier. On the flight deck, uh, what you would, would see are some pressure-sensitive instruments. So the rate of climb and descent indicators are classic. As the, the pressure wave moves back along the aeroplane across the sensors, that would bob up and down just for a, a second or two. Then it settles. And that's all you saw. So it's just a non-event. I heard as well, we, we interviewed some um, some guys who flew this, a couple of uh, ex-Concorde captains. They said one of the problems with uh, flying the aircraft and being in the cabin is because it expanded so much because of the heat during the, the, the flight. You have to be careful where you put things. If you put something into a crevice, <laughs> you might not be able to get it back when you landed. Absolutely. Um, the actual point you could see the expansion was on the engineer's panel, at the extreme right of it, there's a blue label that says cabin secured takeoff. Now, as we stand on the ground today, the two panels actually meet, there is no gap between those panels. But once you're in the air, as you accelerate through the speed of sound, you get kinetic heating take place. So the air friction begins to build up, mm. the aircraft gets hot. Solid temperatures you're talking about on the tip of the nose up to 127 degrees Celsius. Passing the flight deck windows 100 degrees, so the boiling point of water. Yeah. That, of course, is going to cause the aircraft to grow. I've got a, a photo here that shows a flight engineer and you can see he's got his fingers right the way up to the, the knuckles inside the gap. Yeah, it's, uh, he literally is right up to the knuckles. I'll just go and let's, let's look at the, the, the gap now that you're talking about. And uh, I can confirm there is literally, you can't even get your finger in there at the moment and he's got his whole hand in there. So that what's that? That's about two or three inches of it's expansion? Around about an inch. And um, if you look at the second photo I have here, it shows uh, an engineer's hat. And it's been <laughs> very carefully placed inside the gap. This was done on the very last flight of Concorde. And a couple of engineers did it. So you can see a couple of Concords around the world with the caps in place. And it's a the way of saying goodbye, the final flights, because you don't have flight engineers anymore, of course. So they signed the hats, stuck them in the gaps, left them there, and the gap closed up. And that's never coming out again. No, that's it, it's stuck. <laughs> but you mentioned um, being careful where you put things. There's been a few instances over the years where the engineers have been busy gone through a checklist, nowhere to put the checklist. So you stick it in the gap, thinking I'll take that away in a moment, <laughs> you get carried away doing something else, you've decelerated. That's it till the next time. So it's, um, you've got to have got to be very careful what you do. I mean, this is what, 1960s, 1950s technology, isn't it? To be honest, this aircraft. But I mean, there are computers on board, but they're whacking great big things, aren't they? I mean, re- really quite big boxes full of processing power. Oh, there are, there are said dozens of boxes. If you take the panels away, what you get are boxes that are around about 20, 22 inches long, about three inches wide, and about five inches high. If you take the tops off, they're crammed with circuit boards. And if you the inputs in, runs it through the circuits, you get your outputs out. And there's different computers, processors for different functions. So it's, um, it is, it's by today's standards, a very basic aeroplane, but you've got to match what aeroplanes do today with what Concorde did. Uh, it may be basic, but you can't actually do what Concorde did today. That is very true. I mean, do you think we ever will see the like? I mean, is, is, there, a, is there a will to go at supersonic speeds carrying passengers? There is, but there's a lot of challenges. And it's that word keeps coming up with Concorde. Mm. If you think about the range, just over 4,000 miles, it's not really enough. If you're going to cross the Pacific, you need well, a, a bigger range than that. Payload, 100 passengers. In terms of weight, £28,000 weight. That's with a maximum takeoff weight of £408,000. So it's quite a fine balance. 
noise it was noisy and it was also a bit thirsty well actually it was very thirsty <laughs> so if you can get around those various challenges then you're in with a fighting chance of building a supersonic airliner again the trend now is looking more towards size the a380 is a prime example but if you do want to go supersonic you're looking at business jets and there's one in production isn't there I've, I've read that somewhere they're, someone's making it in america they're making a, a, a supersonic biz jet yeah i think there's two or three that are actually on the drawing board on different stages of that and the beauty of those is of course you don't have to fly from london which concord did to new york you can go from manchester to toronto you can go pretty much any smaller airport to any smaller airport a dozen people so you can have your board meeting on board on the way fly about mach 1.7 so you're going to save time, you avoid some of the complications of going that bit faster. So that's the way things are moving at the moment. But it's not the same, is it? Is the, where's the romance? No, this is it. If you talk to the people who flew Concorde, then they'll tell you it was absolutely fabulous. You know, sitting on the flight deck, looking through the windows, just looking at the curvature of the earth and the really dark blue sky. And just imagine looking through the windows and seeing a quarter of a million square miles just laid ahead of you. And watching the weather systems, you know, big spirals of cloud heading towards the UK as you cross the Atlantic. Yeah, as far as as far as far office windows goes, this isn't a bad one, is it? It's got to be amongst the, the best in the world, I would say. So we've moved outside now. It was hard to drag ourselves away. Uh, I had a little sit in the Queen's seat. Sorry, Mom, I hope that doesn't uh, interfere with the knighthood or anything. Well, actually, you've done the honours list, so I, I was missed <laughs> out again, so, you know, I'm not so fussed. Uh, we've moved down to the pointy end. Looking up at that, that's, that, that is a beautiful sight. It is. It's, um, again, one of the things we, we stress is the shape. It's a unique shape. It's got to be a very long, thin nose because that allows you to break that, that pressure cone of air that builds up on the tip of the nose as you uh, go through the speed of sound. But you can see from here, it gives you the big challenge because we're, we're standing under now the nose of Concorde that's 24 feet long. So imagine you're sat on the flight deck looking out through the window, there's 24 feet of nose ahead of you. And you can see quite clearly the curved line on the side and there's a line that runs underneath across the aircraft that's the hinge and it's always amazing for people to see just how long that nose was that's a, again a, an interesting perspective from here well and stood down here as well the visibility is an issue isn't it because you can't you can barely see the cockpit windows can you there's well, very little visibility at all exactly there's really two phases you've got to be able to see when you're taxiing and you also need to see of course when you're coming into land because as you slow down the way the delta wings generate lift, the angle of attack increases. So you're looking at typically an angle of 12 degrees on the final approach. So dropping that nose 12 and a half degrees gives you a nice clear view of your runway. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? When you stand right, at the, which you can do, of course, here, you can stand right at the tip of the nose underneath the aircraft and just look down. And that is, that's a hell of a view, isn't it? That, you know, the, the delta wing and just the shape, that iconic shape, and looking into those engine cowlings. That's, it's a beast, it's a magnificent view. It is, it's on the tour as well as bring people to this point and just say to them, just look back and appreciate the shape. Because you're right, from here you can see the whole of Concorde. And it's incredible. So, um, I see it every day, but standing here now, it's the same feeling as it was seven years ago. That is making me go a bit goosebumpy, it's that. It's brilliant. It's Hairs on the back of my neck are standing here. I really mean that. It's a, it, why is that plane still not flying? It's so wrong. Yeah. It does. It looks like it could Beautiful. have come out of the factory yesterday. I know. It's, it's not aged at all. At this point, you can actually really appreciate the shape of the wings. Now, that double delta, the Ogival delta, is quite an amazing shape. And if you get on the wings itself, you can see there isn't a straight bit on it anywhere. It cambers, but it cambers not just from the fuselage, but from the front to the back edge. It's twisted underneath, it's sculpted, there's not a flat bit on it anywhere. 
and the actual the sweep of the wings it's a lovely almost a continuous curve but there's a, a notch part way down that's well there's technical reasons for having that and if you come on the tour we'll tell you what it is <laughs> oh see what you did there very good i like that and this man knows because you get to go on the wings don't you and dust it i do part of what i've been doing is to make sure the aircraft looks good so a bit of dusting bit of polishing just giving it a shine because it's uh, it looks best when it shines it's not a bad day at the office is it it's, no it's tricky <laughs> are those the pitots underneath there yeah you've got a pitot on the nose and one either side of the the nose itself there's three in total and then you've got a couple of incidence vanes and a couple of um, temperature sensors and then behind those you've got a couple of icing detectors because with a wing this size ice could be a big problem at your mm. normal height normal speed yeah. And you can see from here the, the black mats underneath the leading edge of the wings. Those are the electrically heated de-icing mats. So no bleed air, just pure electrical heating. You can also see from here that the nose wheel is a long way back. So from where the pilot sat, you're looking at around about 38 feet between this point and where those forward wheels are. And it's the first place you could actually get them in because you've got the 24 foot long nose. You've got an undercarriage that's the best part of 13 feet that of course retracts forwards. And underneath the floor between those two points, you've got to get all the avionics in. And the avionics bay is quite small. So it's um, it's challenging. Just imagine trying to taxi an aircraft that you sat 38 feet ahead of the nose wheel as you're moving down the taxiway. And imagine being over the grass as you take the bends. It's an um, interesting experience. If you like trying to watch, watch my missus park her car. <laughs> there's, uh, there's a couple of gaps in the underside of the, of the aircraft and we can see. And what, uh, what are we looking at in there? As we've actually got three of the hatches off. You can see the relay jacks through the front hatch, some of the avionics through the other two hatches. It does give you an idea how difficult the aircraft was to work on. Those boxes there, I mean, we were talking about this on the, the flight deck, there's, there's three fairly big boxes. They look like the size of small, you know, small suitcases. I'm guessing that's kind of, uh, that's a computer. It is, yeah. <laughs> um, if you drag those out, they weigh around about 20 kilos each. So there's a fair bit of weight in those and accessing them is quite a challenge. Everything is at least 12, 13 feet above the ground. So obviously you need ladders. Once you're in there, space is very tight. And, and the computing power of probably a calculator now. Yep, if, if you've got a mobile phone on you, which most people have, there's a lot more processing power in a mobile phone than on the computers of Concorde. Yeah, but your mobile phone can't get to 60,000 feet and fly at twice the speed of sound, can it, Ross? Uh, no, that's very true. So uh, we, we stopped just by the uh, the nose wheel now. Well, I say nose wheel. It's nowhere near the nose, is it? Uh, no, it's, it's quite <laughs> far back. Uh, it's actually under, uh, I think it's under row five in the cabin. So it is quite far back. And it's a big undercarriage. If you're used to walking around aeroplanes, typically three or four feet clearance from the ground is what you get. Well, with Concorde, as I say, it's about 12, 13 feet. So the long undercarriage would retract forwards. You can actually see a couple of doors, very long doors, with lights on the underneath and imagine the doors opening to the sides while the lights are actually pointing to the sides but there's a clever mechanism that actually rotates those lights forwards to give you literally forward light That's yeah. just, um, those are your landing lights there's another two actually just on the, the very root of the, uh, the wing and again those are powered by little motors down so the light projects forward it preserves the aerodynamics when it's in the air at higher speed but it gives you that, uh, that projected light when you need it 
and I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Every, everything. It's a very, it's a very smooth aircraft, isn't it? As you said, you know, even something like a light is is sort of recessed, and all of, it's all about keeping that aerodynamic shape, isn't it? It is. It's as I mentioned before, it's a compromise. Everything is well, not the best you could possibly have, but it's the best you could possibly make work. Yeah. Because of course, you put the best of one thing in, you've compromised something else. So it's it's a balance. But it's a very flat aeroplane underneath. Um, again, most aeroplanes, when you stand underneath, you've got your, your fuselage, so an oval fuselage, the wing's coming off, perhaps halfway down. This is literally flat underneath. It's um, Standing in its perspective, you can really appreciate that, that flatness. It's all about, again, riding the air in the right way. And this, uh, this, this nose wheel, um, just uh, tell us, what speed did it land at? What was the, what was the final approach speed? What, uh, what speed was that hitting the deck at? Touchdown's 187 miles an hour pretty quick so it is um, hence why all the wear on the wheels you can, it's down to the cords I'd never well, pass an MOT well apparently um, these are in pretty good condition the engineers will tell you that they actually build these tyres with sacrificial wear strips in them and the idea is you can see how the tyres are wearing uh, looking at these now there's looks like a bit of string that's been um, basically just stuck on the outside of the tyre but it's just showing that the tyres the are wearing quite well you don't have those on the main wheels they're smooth and a fair bit bigger. And the big challenge with those, of course, is at 187 touchdown speed, you're going to get instant vaporisation of the outside skin of the, yeah. the tyre. So um, it was quite heavy on tyres, depending on how the pilots landed it, of course. <laughs> but remember, any, any what is it? Any uh, any landing you can walk away from is a good one. Yeah, I believe so. Anyone you can use the aircraft again is a brilliant landing. Better. Yeah. <coughs> challenges um, with tyres: you're looking at round about twenty thousand pounds for a set of tyres. In different phases of its life, early on you could retread some of the tyres, and towards the end you couldn't. So once the tyres were damaged, as in you land on a stone, a chunk gets taken out, those tyres had to be taken away and got rid of. I suppose as well the other thing with this aircraft, and we keep saying about it, it should still be flying. I mean the pro- the problem is, of course. I mean, how would you? I mean, parts parts aren't made for these planes, I guess anymore. Where would you get parts from? Yeah, that's something else. The when they retired the aircraft, they had a lot of auctions for charity. And what they're auctioning off were spare parts. Now, some bizarre parts, engine parts, you know, bits of everything. But of course, those bits of everything are what you need to keep your aircraft airworthy. So you're quite right. The Concords, they only built 20 in total. Only 14 of those carried passengers. It's a very small number. And they were pretty much hand-built. So each Concorde was subtly different. The spare supply is hard to come by. So in the future, if somebody wanted to get one flying again, that would be, that word again, a big challenge. Where to next, boss? Well, as we're passing the forward luggage bay, um, it becomes fairly obvious that there's not a great deal of space for storing anything, baggage, freight. So hang on, that's that's the luggage hold? That's the entrance where they put all the bags in? It's one of them, yeah. We're actually it's standing. tiny. It is. The, the aperture's <laughs> about three feet square. I thought that was another inspection hatch. <laughs> it looks like one. <laughs> um, we can actually see that the door hinges inwards. Now, once you're in that luggage bay, you've got roughly eight feet forwards and six feet back. The depth is around about three feet and the width is around about four feet. There's a second one at the back. The total capacity is around about two and a half tonnes, which is nothing. And did they, were the bags loaded in one by one? Because now, of course, they're all put into the containers, aren't they, and just wheeled in. But I'm guessing with that hatch, you're not going to get a container in there, are you? No, the only way to load them is hand load them using a conveyor belt to get them up inside yeah. the, the luggage bay. And a baggage handler would be in there positioning the bags. And again, you've got to be really careful with the balance. The, typically, you've got to get the 53.4% of your 
wing route as your centre of gravity position for your takeoff. And to do that, you're moving bags around. Now, they, the dispatcher had a big job with Concorde. It had to be spot on. Uh, near enough just wasn't good enough. It had to be 100%. And, of course, with some of the passengers who go on there, you wouldn't want the baggage handlers, not that they would have done here at Manchester, of course, lobbing the bags around, because when they're the Queen's... Absolutely not. Some valuable <laughs> stuff in those bags, not to mention the cost of the bags themselves. Yes, very true. So we're looking underneath the wings now, and as we're looking underneath, just need to imagine that inside the wings are fuel tanks. We've got five in each of the wings, two across the forward section of the wings, and well, final one right at the back under the tail. Total capacity, 119,500 litres of fuel, which is enough to go from London to New York with that all-important reserve just in case you have to divert off anywhere. And we can see two refuelling points actually towards the centre of the aircraft. So you could pump the fuel in from either or both of these points. And there's a refuelling panel. And again we have this open so we can show people that uh, it was quite a task to load up the fuel. And we're looking at uh, a panel that is around about two and a half feet long with 13 dials and control switches on. That's almost as complicated as the cockpit, and that's it just is. for putting the fuel in. <laughs> that's just for getting the fuel on board, yeah. So once you've connected your fuel pipes to the underground supply or bowsers, whichever way you're doing it, the refueling engineer would then pump the fuel into the various tanks by selecting the switches and directing the fuel into those tanks. And just behind the panel is a small disc. It's around about two inches diameter. And looking close at that, you can see there's a matrix etched on the disc. And there's a bubble. In essence, it's a spirit level. And what the engineer would do is just have a quick check on that to see if the bubble is in the middle, because that would tell him if the aircraft's properly balanced. If it's not, you then have to move the fuel around in the tanks, get it ready for, uh, for takeoff. For a supersonic aircraft, some bits of it aren't very high-tech, are they, Ross? No, sometimes a just a, a bubble in a bit of glass <laughs> with a bit of water in is all you need. But if it works, it, it works. doesn't matter, does it? Absolutely. And what we can also see here are the access hatches for getting inside the wings. And we're looking at oval panels. There are several of them underneath the wing. And that is the way you would get inside the fuel tanks in the wings if you needed to do any inspections or any work. So uh, post the Paris crash, they had to install tank liners to make the, the aircraft safe. Mm. And basically the, the Kevlar and rubber compound. And they would sit just ahead of the, the engines. So just ahead of the intakes and inboard of the, the engines themselves. And the only way to get those in was to drain the fuel get rid of the vapours which took the best part of a week then to remove these hatches which are no more than I'd say 10 inches wide by about You'd struggle to get your head in wide. wouldn't you? You would but the challenge was to get the whole body of the engineers who were doing the work <laughs> through the hatch and then moving forwards to work in the prone area because you've got to get these tank liners fairly well they all ranged in different sizes and shapes to yeah. say if every Concorde was different but the average one would be about two feet wide by about two and a half feet long. So you've got to take those physically inside the wing, position them, clip them together, and once all the 100 are in, come back out, put the panels on, put your fuel in. So it's, um, it's a devil of a job. You needed quite short, uh, not very well-built engineers to, <laughs> to do that work. So we're just carrying on underneath the aeroplane. We've got a few other hatches open so you can see the air conditioning intake. Uh, hydraulic servicing hatches and what's nice about the, the way British Airways retired their Concords around the side of the engine you've got a couple of stickers and one of them will tell you that the engines were made by Rolls-Royce who worked with a company called Snecma uh, you may know Snecma, French Aerospace Company still around today 
they worked on the quite complex assembly because it's a three-stage engine basically got the fuel burning bit in the middle yep. complex intake at the front and a complex exhaust system on the back um, British Aircraft Corporation built the complex intake Rolls-Royce the engines Snecker worked on the exhaust system and all three have to work together because there's no point in putting more around the front and you can get through the engine then we'll go out the exhaust because it builds up then it comes back forward as a surge so a fabulous bit of engineering in its own right the air intake will slow the air down that's its job so you're looking at top speed the air going in the intake at 1350 miles an hour mm. you've got to slow that air down to subsonic speed the box containing the intakes is 11 feet long so in that 11 feet you slow the air down by a thousand miles an hour it goes in the engine doing 350 miles an hour you've warmed it and you've pre-compressed it the engine then does the, the clever burning bit it goes through the uh, exhaust section that's where the afterburner sits just as the exhaust enters the, the main exhaust um, chamber they reckon that the besides slowing air down the air intake contributed to the thrust of the, the aircraft so imagine on takeoff the fuel burning bit will give you 82% of the thrust coming out the back the other 18% is a combination of the intake and the exhaust. At Mach 2, the fuel burning bit will give you 8%. 8%? Percent. 8%. 63% will come from the air intake, the remainder from the exhaust system. Blimey. So it's it's comparatively efficient once you get it up to Mach yeah. 2. But, um, so the nice thing they did when they retired the Concords, they put a second sticker on the side of the engine. Now, all the BA Concords have them, and it reads, Engineered to be the best, Concorde flew above the rest. And there's some names and signatures across the bottom of each of those stickers. And that's a team of engineers who decommissioned that particular Concorde. And it's their way of saying goodbye to the best in the world. And there it is. You can see it on the side of the Olympus engines. And yeah, you can just see the signatures. That's incredible. That's, that's brought a bit of a lump to my throat, yeah, that's that, a, nice. It's a nice little touch. Yeah. Fabulous. So we're carrying on again underneath the wings now. And uh, we're just passing underneath the PFCUs on the powered flight control units. And what you have are two large bumps underneath each of the wings. If you could take the cowling off those, you'd find hydraulic rams. So up on the flight deck, you're moving the control column. It's a fly-by-wire aircraft. In fact, it was the world's first fly-by-wire airliner. Yeah. So as you're moving the control column, the computer's analysing what you're doing, sending signals to these PFCUs. And those will then move the alivons on the backs of the wings. And these are the only moving parts on the entire wing. And so there's no flaps or slots or anything like that? Absolutely nothing. It's, it's in that way a very simple wing once you've got round the shape very complex shape yeah. very simple controls there are three alivons on either side and each alivon is actually a two panel alivon so technically there are 12 but each moves as a pair and we're looking at quite a large panels around about six feet by well, five feet I suppose um, per panel so if you have two of those together six feet by ten feet and it gives you that elevator air along combination. And it's a very active system. Was it stable to fly at low speeds? Did, did, did the pilot said that? It was. The, the control system was incredible. It's, you've got to think back to the 1960s. It's always hard to imagine 1960s doing this sort of stuff. But they produced an aeroplane that was incredibly stable. It could do all sorts of things that other aircraft, even today, couldn't do. And the pilots again tell you nice stories about they're coming into a very windy American city possibly Chicago, because that's renowned for being windy. Yes. And they're in the hold, not for very long, but they're watching a couple of 747s ahead of them trying to land. And the crosswind 
was just far too much for the 747. Mm. So they gave it a try, turned off, diverted. And we got the OK for the, the final approach. They switched the auto land system on and the air traffic controllers just were a bit puzzled. They just wanted to confirm that we're definitely doing an auto land because it's not what you would normally do in that. Yeah, 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 crossway. And the pilots said, yep, yeah, all an auto, it's just going to do it itself. So they sat back, left, left it alone, and it was a perfect touchdown. Crosswinds, it was designed. It was it coped with crosswinds incredibly. It's um, a fabulous bit of engineering. It is a matter, I mean, when you say that, you know, the range of speeds and things it had to do, it's flying at Mach 2, and yet, you know, and yet it's still quite good at very, very low speeds. You know, what an amazing all round aircraft. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, the low speed stuff was, again, quite challenging because I mentioned the, the angle increase, the attitude increases as you slow down. Well, that's quite challenging with drag. So what you tend to be doing is increasing the power mm. as you're slowing down to balance. Well, there'll come a point where if you get the angle too steep, the drag overcomes the lift available. So at that point, you're in real trouble. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's quite steep. You could take it up to 25 degrees nose up attitude. Wow. And it would still be airborne. So let's move around the backs of the engines. There's uh, an unpainted exhaust section because it's pretty hot, so you're wasting your time painting that. <laughs> And on the backs of those engines, you then got the secondary nozzles. There's actually two sets of nozzles, as the name secondary implies. The primary ones sit in the inside, the secondaries on the outside. And it's a convergent-divergent system. You can actually squeeze, control the air inside the, the engine itself, which allows you to control the speed of the, the rotation. Well, the, the actual buckets you can see on the back, the secondary nozzles, three positions. They're set now for takeoff and you can actually see a couple of gaps across the top and the bottom and that allows cold air to mix with the, the hot exhaust and in theory that should quieten things down a little bit for takeoff but uh, if you ever heard Concorde take off you know <laughs> they did a very good job yeah, yeah. Uh, when you're supersonic these diverge they open up further and when you land you close these completely at the back which leaves them completely open at the front that then becomes your reverse thrust and because there's no moving parts no way of slowing the aircraft down other than throttle back increase the angle of attack you can engage a couple of those um, secondary nozzles as reverse thrusts in the air for emergency deceleration. Behind the registration, GBOAC, you've got the large fuel tank into which you pump the fuel to trim the aircraft. And you get a lovely view of the, uh, the tail wheel. So not many airplanes in the world have four sets of wheels, four undercarriages. But of course Concorde did. And the whole aim of that, if you're coming into land or taking off, you over-rotate well, you're not going to catch the, not the back of the aeroplane, it's more the backs of those secondary nozzles. You've got to protect those. So you catch the wheels before you hit the nozzles. I suppose it's like a set of stabilisers, isn't it? Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's, I suppose it is. The big challenge was that once you've caught those, there is no escape because it sounds an alarm on the flight deck and the aircraft has to be checked once you get back to base. And you'd be in a bit of trouble, then. You would. You and ribbing from the other pilots. Well, you would. But you ask the pilots never use those wheels. But if you ask the engineers, you'll get a slightly different story. <laughs> of course. Everything about Concorde, really, is it's, it, it, it's all kind of big numbers, isn't it? Or firsts, or, the, you know, the best of this or the best of that. It's, um, I mean, as you said, it is a compromise, but equally things aren't compromised, are they? The, the materials certainly aren't, the build quality. No, that's right. The, the metal it's made from is it's not standard aircraft aluminium, it's hidiminium. And there's about 2.5% copper, a bit of zinc, a bit of magnesium, and it copes with the creep. Because if you go through the speed of sound, you get the heat building up, you've got hot metal, a lot of stress, and of course when you slow down, it contracts. So over a short period of time, normal aircraft aluminium, it's going to crack. 
but um, they hit aluminium resists that cracking. So there was that. You've got to paint it. Imagine you've got it's an got aircraft. a different type of paint, doesn't it? It has. It's it's um, it's a flexible paint, basically. So imagine you've got an aircraft that's going to grow eight inches every time it flies. So your paint has got to cope with that contraction expansion. So it's a special paint. It's about two and a half times as thick. And it would grow with the aircraft, contract back, and reflect off a fair bit of the heat you got when you went supersonic. If you look along the leading edge, uh, there's a series of panels. It's not one continuous piece of metal. The panels are about four feet long and they're fixed on one end and that's to allow the leading edge to expand because of course your metal's got to grow you've got to give it that, that growth capability so it's a, it's just an incredible really is an incredible bit of engineering it is an incredible bit of engineering and what 40 50 years old technology absolutely and we still haven't beat it no it's, today it will take you between six and a half and eight and a half hours to go from london to new york Fastest time Concorde ever did that journey in was 2 hours, 52 minutes, 59 seconds. It's amazing. It's an amazing exhibition as well. Uh, if, uh, if you're anywhere near Manchester Airport, actually even if you're not anywhere near Manchester Airport, come and visit it because if you love aircraft and, uh, and who doesn't love Concorde, let's be honest, uh, you'll have a fantastic time here. Thank you ever so much for showing us around. It's, it's an amazing bit of kit and an amazing job you've got, Ross. I think it's fair to say we're a bit jealous. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. If you need anyone to come and help you dust the wings... <laughs> We're here at Flaps. I'll give you a call. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for showing us around, uh, Alpha Charlie. It's a great pleasure. Flaps extended. <laughs> <laughs>